Interview number 117, Tim Araneta, Bringing Storytelling to the Fringe. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to The Art of Storytelling, and this is Brother Wolf, and I am so glad that you are taking the time that you have found the gumption, the desire, the willingness, the impertinence, and most importantly, the passion to pursue, to examine the art of storytelling and how it can be taken into the Fringe Festival circuit. But before I begin, I'm going to tell you what many of my regular listeners will recognize as as the importance of what we're doing here. I know that you have many things. I know that you have many things that you're doing. You have many important tasks you want to accomplish, but maybe this is the most important thing. Maybe you can put aside that project you're working on. My guest, Tim Araneta, is a California storyteller, but he also is a fringe artist. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Eric. Tim is an award-winning storyteller based in Berkeley, California, who has performed on stages in schools, theaters, and festivals across the country. He's a recipient of the National Storytelling Network's J.J. Renault Emerging Artist Grant for 2006, awarded each year to a storyteller of major, unique, performing talent who has not yet received wide public recognition. For 10 years, he was on the main stage of the BATS Improv, one of San Francisco's most popular improv troops. He's a co-founder of the Storytellers Unplugged, an ensemble of performers who use improvisational storytelling to reveal the power of story in our everyday life. And so, Tim, do you have a story you could share with us? Yeah, I'd love to share a story. It's called The Two Brothers. Once upon a time, there were two brothers, one rich and one poor. Now, they started out life the same. And then they joined the army for the king, and for ten years they served the king. But when the war was over, they went back to their regular lives. One went home to the farm, but it was hard to make any money. Sometimes it was hard to put food on the table. The other brother went to the big city, and there he became a merchant and traded goods from the east. And the spices and the materials, the cloth he brought in, he became a wealthy man. Now one day the poor farmer was harvesting his turnip crop. And he was bringing in the turnips, and he found one he could not pull out of the ground. He called for his wife. She helped him. They couldn't pull it up. They called the neighbors. It took six people to dig out this turnip because it was so large, so enormous. It was the size of four people. Well, they managed to get it into a wagon and bring it to the town market. But no one could afford such a turnip. No one wanted a turnip that big. So what was the poor farmer to do? He had an idea. He took the wagon to the king's castle. And he said, Your Majesty, I served you for many years in your army, but now I've brought you this tribute from my garden. And the king looked at this turnip and was mightily impressed. You shall be rewarded. For bringing this to me, I should give you a brand new tract of land. For if you can pull this out of your hard scrabble soil, imagine what you could do with a rich farm. And so the poor farmer suddenly found himself with lots of fertile land. Now, when his rich brother heard this, he scoffed. The king gave you la- For what? A turnip? I can't believe... Do you know what I have? 
I have silks. I have spices from the east. A king would love. You, ju- you just wait and see how the king rewards me. So the rich brother put together a gift basket for the king. And he brought it and said, Your majesty, I served you for many years in your army. And now, as tribute to you, I'm going to give you these goods from the east. And the king looked at the spices and the indigo and the silk. And he was impressed. These are magnificent. I will reward you with something from my treasury. But alas, I have nothing of such a value to equal... Oh, wait a minute. I have this enormous turnip. Please take this. And so the rich brother went away unsatisfied. (laughs) Where does that come from? I found that in Grimm's Fairy Tales. It's not it's not a very popular one, but uh, and, and actually in Grimm's there's a second part of the story where the rich brother's so mad he goes on and tries to find a way to kill his younger brother. But I usually leave that part out. I, I think I think that giving him the turnips a good a good button on the story. So this story is wide open. Oh yeah. So how did you get into storytelling? I was a uh, performing arts major, theater major in college, and uh, one of our Professors Reeves Collins at Northwestern was very interested in storytelling. He made sure that uh, we all knew that it was uh, one of the performing arts. And, in fact, he uh, said, Tim, we've got a storytelling festival this weekend in Emerson. you got to go see it. And I had no idea what it was in for, but I got to see uh, great storytellers like Jackie Torrance and J.O. Callahan. And I was very impressed, and I thought, wow, these people are creating solo theater. I, I want to find out more about it. And how did you get into Fringe Festivals? In San Francisco, um, there's a big solo performance scene. So a lot of artists creating their own work, creating one-person shows. And for a long time, they've had a Fringe Festival. And I went and saw uh, friends performing in the San Francisco Fringe. And I actually knew a lot of people doing improv at various Fringe Festivals around the country. And I suddenly realized, oh, wait a minute. All these solo performers are also taking their material, going to a new city, getting new audiences. I've, I've got to try this. So San Francisco, it's close to my hometown in Berkeley, so um, that was the first time I got my feet wet, put together a show, and um, found it was a great opportunity to, to show off my work. So how are the fringe community and the storytelling community similar or different? Well, the biggest uh, difference, I think, is how they select the artists to perform. So in the traditional storytelling festival circuit, there are festivals all over the country and around the world, and they get to decide, well, who do we want to have on stage this year? And they'll make a choice based on their artistic criteria, which may or may not be transparent. Say, we want this kind of person, this kind of person, and they'll send out invitations and put together a roster of artists. With a fringe festival, the ba- a basic fringe principle is that selection of artists is unjuried. So that means there is no artistic criteria of how they invite artists. It's often done by lottery, and in some places it's first come, first serve. So in other words, you want to be on our stage? Send us a proposal, and we'll put you on if you get in by the deadline. Or, you know, we're going to get so many, we'll drop all your proposals in a fishbowl, we'll draw out your name, and if we draw your name, then you're in. Is there some sort of barrier to application, like a fee or various deadlines? Right. They they do have a, a deadline, and they do have a fee, and that can range anywhere from $25 to $200. Um, and, and the reason... I actually heard 400 for some... Uh, well, that's just to put your name in the hat. 
right, just to put your name in the hat. And that's make sure people are serious about doing this. Then if they do draw your name, you may have to put up $400, $500, $600, $800 to reserve a theater. You're actually paying, you're actually producing yourself. You're actually paying uh, for a theater space in this festival. One of the other key differences between a fringe festival and a storytelling festival or those communities is the type of audiences you get. So in a storytelling community, uh, you will often have people who are just interested in seeing stories, just there for the storytelling. A fringe audience, by and large, is coming to a fringe festival willing to try anything. Usually, uh, a fringe festival will not only have storytellers, they'll also have um, theater companies, magicians, ventriloquists, burlesque troops, modern dancers, performance artists. So there's a wide variety of types of shows. And the fringe audiences know this. They come willing to try a new experience. They're open-minded. They're, they might never have seen storytelling before, but looking at all the different performers in a festival, they might say, hey, I'll go try that. And I find that uh, a great way to um, meet new audiences and expand storytelling to new audiences. And how do these fringe audiences react to traditional storytelling? It can vary. Um, I think it's a question of managing expectations. They do expect to see uh, performance. So if you're used to telling stories just in a swap circle and you're very low-key, uh, they might think, well, that's why did I pay money to see that kind of performance? Often the venues are theaters, maybe small experimental theaters, black boxes. So there's kind of an expectation that there's a show. When I do storytelling at a fringe festival, I'm very aware of my stage presence. And there's going to be stage lighting on me. Um, I might bring a prop or two just to set a scene. I might wear a costume, which I no don't normally do in a storytelling event, um, just to give a sense of, to let the audience know that I've thought about um, my storytelling as a show, so that they're going to see a show. Now, in terms of the content of what I do at a storytelling festival or what I do at a fringe festival, it's 98% exactly the same. The 2% I need to change for the fringe festival is to set up their expectations of what they're going to see. For example, one of my fringe shows, I put a title on. It's called Chart Toppers of 1349. And I, in the little description of the show, it says, Tim Araneta, storyteller, counts down the greatest storytelling hits of the mid-14th century. And in between the stories, I'll actually do a little bit of Casey Kasem shtick, where I say, and then number nine this year, a folktale from Bohemia, that kind of thing. So... I, might not, I probably would not do that kind of shtick at a storytelling festival or storytelling event. It's not necessary that people know I'm there to tell fairy tales and folk tales. But to help manage the expectations and kind of set the scene for a fringe audience, um, they might not quite get it if I just got up there and told eight fairy tales in a row. So I've created this kind of uh, frame to stitch it all together. You've seen other storytellers come into Fringe, yes? Mm -hmm. So, without naming any names, of course, <laughs> um, how, what are the mistakes people make going in? Well, one mistake I've seen is not uh, being aware that it's a show. So, if they're not prepared to, um, you know, fill a 50-seat theater with their voice, 50 seats is not big as theaters go, but if you're used to telling 
in a small living room or a church basement, that can be a change because you're probably not going to have a sound system there. Uh, many storytelling festivals and events use a microphone. You need to make it clear to the Fringe Festival what your technical needs are. And that, that's the second issue I see uh, novice or beginning storytellers not understand is that they will ask you your technical needs and you should be able to answer them. Okay, I will need this many lights. I will need this much um, sound equipment or no sound equipment. And I will need a CD player or not. I will need a slide projector or a digital projector. Now, a lot of storytellers don't even think about this. It's not part of their normal routine. In that case, I would recommend you get an assistant on the ground who has some background in theater just to say, okay, let's put the lighting on stage this way so you look good. And oh, here's a mistake I made with lighting. And I, I have a theater background. I should have thought of this. Didn't realize it until my first night. At the Rogue Festival in Fresno, California, I put together a storytelling show, set the lights, got up, did the show, and I realized as I was performing, with the light spotlights in my face, on my eyes, I could not see my audience. And it threw me off, because as a storyteller, I'm used to gauging the audience reaction, playing off what they're giving me with their body language and their faces, and that was gone. And I knew this. I kept going. I kept telling the stories, but it was really hard to get the reaction because I could only hear them. So after that first show, I had about four or five performances. I talked to the lighting guy and I said, can we leave the lights on in the audience and bring the lights on me down? And that worked. So I was able to see the audience and I just felt much more comfortable um, with the rest of my performances because then I could do what every storyteller knows how to do, which is play off of the audience and, and include them in the storytelling act. Alex Jester made the case for leaving the stage lights on and the house lights off. And so what are the advantages as a teller for, for going for this more traditional point of view in the storytelling circuit? I think the advantage of leaving the house lights on and being able to see the audience is exactly being able to co-create the story, being able to look at the audience, engage how they are imagining, how they are putting together the images that you're sharing with them in the story. With the full theatrical lighting on you and, you and the audience in the dark, that makes it very difficult, very difficult for the performer on stage to do that. You can certainly uh, hope they're doing it, trusting they're doing it. Um, maybe if you're so fine-tuned that you get a kinesthetic sense they're with you just by hearing them and their breathing and, and hearing their laughter or their any kind of response, you might be able to do it. But I, for me, I find visually connecting with the audience, making eye contact with them is so important. Okay, my name is Michael Cotter, and you are listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. How much is the PR and the social connections, the social networking, important to a successful Fringe event? That's the next issue that storytellers have to realize about performing in a Fringe Festival. Because if you are invited to a storytelling event, say a storytelling festival, you show up and you do your work, you're done. Because the storytelling producers will have sent out a flyer, sent out their um, Facebook notices or messages to bring in the audience to the storytelling event. You're the honored guest, you just show up. But in a Fringe Festival... You are a featured performer, a, a 
featured artists, but you're one of dozens, if not hundreds, of other performers in that festival. So that means you must be your own producer. You are responsible not only for putting on a show, you're responsible for bringing in your own audience. Now, how do you do that in a city that you don't know anybody or you know 12 people, but you've got six shows in a 50-seat theater, you've got to fill 300 seats? Promotion, public relations, and social media is absolutely critical. The fringe standard is everyone prints up a full-color 4x6 postcard and hands them out and leaves them around the theaters. But I just found in, uh, for example, I just did the Capitol Fringe in Washington, D.C. There were 130 different performing troops in the festival. Every one of them had a beautifully produced 4x6 postcard. When you walk into the box office and see 130 different choices, each with a beautifully designed postcard, they all disappear. It's just, it's too much to take in. So you have to do the personal connections um, when whether you're comfortable calling people that you know in town or getting on Facebook or Twitter and saying, hey, I'm coming to town with this show. You're going to like it for these three reasons. Um, I'm doing something different. You really have to make it stand out. So titles are often key. Having a catchy title, having a very short description of what the show is that will bring people in. And, um, and again, doing advanced work with... Um, press releases and PR, letting people know. I think uh, especially if you can reach out to target audiences. If, for example, you're doing a storytelling show maybe about uh, World War II, you might reach out to veterans groups. Or if you're doing um, shows about fairy tales like I do, I reached out to the storytelling community where I knew there were local storytelling guilds who would probably be interested in coming to see it. I recently heard um, a friend of mine, Howard Lieberman, talking about how he would give away complimentary tickets to fill the house the first night because it created a perception of success. Oh, yes, because at a fringe festival, like I said, you have 130, 200 shows. Even a small festival might have 30 different performances. It's going to be word of mouth that is going to bring most of the people in. So you want as many people as you can to come to the show early on in your run you'll usually have four or five or six or more performances during the festival. So early on, yeah, you want as many bodies in the seats so that they can get the word out. And so if you have to give away free tickets, give away free tickets. Um, it's, it's really important because it will bring other people in later on. So you also, um, you have a blog that you publish your thoughts on storytelling. You know, I've been um, blogging about storytelling for seven years most people only know I've been blogging for three years because for the previous four, I was doing it under an assumed name, and I'm not going to reveal what that name is. But, the um, yeah, I, I found that um, there wasn't much conversation going on about storytelling in public. You could talk about storytelling at storytelling conferences and storytelling festivals, and there was a storytelling magazine that would come out uh, quarterly or every other month. So I thought, well, you know, we've got the web. Anybody can talk about anything. So, yeah, I started um, blogging about my opinions about storytelling. So my blog, uh, Breaking the Eggs, is about um, issues of performance storytelling. And in the beginning, I was uh, pretty opinionated. I was pretty much saying, here's how I think it should be, which, you know, gets some attention. (laughs) 
it's not the best way to start a conversation. So I, I've now I'm I'm more inclined to well, here's what I think. What do you think? Because I realize that you know that way I get more comments, more uh, people are more willing to listen if they're invited to you know have a discussion. And you also have this very interesting blog that's on videos. Yeah, I've this year I started a new blog called Story Lab X, and it's just simply every entry is simply a video of a storyteller performing, just telling a story. And the reason I started it is I wanted to start putting my own work, my own storytelling work online on the web where people could watch me on videos and I was wondering well what's the best way to do that what are some of the best practices and no one had been writing about that and I thought well let's figure this out together let's just put up all the the whole range of of storytelling videos and some are little handheld cameras from the back of the room some are produced in a studio some are done 6 inches away from a webcam in front of a computer and I don't know what the right answer is yet. I'm still exploring all the different ways to do it. And I, I'm just finding it's it's fascinating the way different storytellers, different artists are choosing to put their work on video and put putting that online. And what's that website again? That's StoryLabX, and that's at StoryLabX.tumblr.com. So wh- as story, if a storyteller listening is interested in... Um, going and trying out a fringe environment. Um, first of all, what sort of material should they be bringing to the fringe? And second of all, how do they go about getting into a fringe? Like, what what are the possible fringes you might recommend um, in the Midwest or in the East or West Coast? So first, to deal with content, many people hear the word fringe and they think alternative, edgy, adult, experimental, and while that kind of content is often at a fringe festival, that's not what the word fringe means. The word fringe next to festival just means that it's unjuried. Just means, it describes the way they're choosing their artists. So, any content is available. They're not going to censor it. They're not going to screen it. They actually don't care what you bring. So you could have a show totally appropriate for preschoolers with um, sing-alongs and audience participation and folktales and animal puppets, that's fine. Or you could do your most intimate, dark, twisted stories from your life or or imagined life. Um, it can be, someone once asked me, well, you know, can I do stories with a kazoo? I'm like, yes. What if I brought a harmonica? That's fine. Uh, well, you know, storytelling events don't let me bring my trumpet. I'm like, no one's going to tell you at a fringe festival what you can or cannot do. It's totally up to you. So that's why I'm a big advocate of fringe festivals. If you, if you find that you, what you really want to do doesn't quite fit in the storytelling community, the traditional storytelling circuit, go try it out at a fringe festival because they'll take anything. So then when it comes to finding a fringe festival, they're all over North America and Canada. You can type it in your favorite search engine and you'll find um, different cities and lists. The... Um, the biggest ones in the United States are um, Minneapolis, the Minnesota Fringe Festival, which takes place every August. That's a very large one. There are also big um, 
experienced fringe festivals in Orlando, Florida, and um, San Francisco. There are newer festivals coming up in, that have been going on for a, a few years now. They're, they're, um, you can find those in Cincinnati and Indianapolis, Washington, D.C. And there are new ones springing up all the time. So Hollywood, California just started one. Chicago, Illinois next year. Honolulu is going to start one. When it comes to choosing which one do I go to, uh, I would recommend going to one where you know people because it's a little bit less of a challenge to get audience if you just have a few friends or family in that town. Uh, the second reason is economic. You have to pay your own way. They're not going to put you up in a hotel. You have to pay for your own lodging and travel. So if you're going to go all the way across the country, it's helpful to have a couch to sleep on or family to stay with. And if you don't, just realize, you know, it's another investment. You have to pay, you know, your own room and board and lodging and figure out a way. Some of these festivals are happy to help you find a volunteer with a spare bedroom or a couch. And some people are comfortable doing that. Other other people are, are not. I guess I'd like to hear more about the actual material that you've done on the fringe. I know you were just in Washington, D.C. Could you just kind of describe for us that experience, you know, give us some actual numbers, talk about the material you presented and what worked and worked, lessons learned? Sure. So I brought my fairy tale show to Washington, D.C., to the Capitol Fringe Festival, and in it I tell eight fairy tales. And as I said, I've, I labeled it Chart Toppers of 1349. I set it up as a countdown of the top hits of the mid-14th century, and in between I make a, a few jokes about what's going on in Europe at the time, um, the Black Death, um, the what's going on in the Vatican, what's going on with um, various wars. And I do that just to give people a context of, of these are old stories, um, but some of the issues that are going on, whether it's about conflict or health, you know, same issues that we deal with today. And so when you hear in a fairy tale issues of death come up or discrimination, that there's a context for that. In terms of logistics, the Capital Fringe Festival runs about three weeks during the summer. And I let them know, well, I'm coming from California. I can't take three weeks off of work. Um, could you squeeze me into a shorter window? And they were, they were happy to accommodate me. So I, had, I was there in Washington, D.C. for 10 days. They gave me a theater with about 50 seats in it. And when I arrived, uh, I had a tech rehearsal. So I went in there, and they said, all right, you tell us uh, how you want the light set, how you want the sound set, what's going to be on stage. And I just had basically one prop, a chair, and a human skull, a model of a human skull to put on stage, um, just to kind of set the atmosphere. I happened to have studied theatrical lighting, so I was able to go up to the light board and set the lights. Um, if I hadn't have done that, I would have needed to bring in someone to help me adjust that. And then that very night, I had my first show. They scheduled me for six performances over 10 days. And the first night, I think I had uh, maybe 15 people there. And I don't know who they were. I think I knew one of them. And it was actually a buddy from San Francisco who happened to be in town. And that was great to have a friend in the front row um, encouraging me. But the other people were complete strangers. I was happy to do my storytelling for them. And then the next night, I happened to get 25 people, and I knew one of them again. So I don't know where they came from. Um, might have been word of mouth. Um, after the first weekend, I discovered that reviewers had come to the show. 
there were bloggers in Washington, D.C. who wanted to see as many fringe shows as possible, so they put little notes on their blogs about what they thought of the show. And one of the first ones said, yeah, we'd recommend it. We enjoyed it. I, I think that helped. Um, there was some word of mouth going on. There was a second reviewer that came and said, you know, I've never seen anything like this at Fringe. I wasn't sure what to expect. I'm not sure I got it. It's not for everyone. They said, Tim Tim is very good at what he does, but it's kind of like a school assembly. And I mean that in a good way. And um, so clearly this person who came to this, right, the show was expecting a play. And one of the lessons learned is that in Washington, D.C., the Fringe Festival is really a showcase for theater companies to try out new work and develop new shows. So out of the 130 different performing troops, um, I would guess close to 120 were plays. Maybe one-act plays or, or plays with three-act structure or maybe a one-person show, but they had a beginning, middle, and end, and the um, the rising action towards a climax that we learned about in theater history, going back to Aristotle. Um, most of them had multiple characters and costumes and lights. They were shows. So people like me doing storytelling, or there was a magician, there were some sketch comedy troops. Some of the comments they got were, oh, we didn't quite get this. We wasn't, it didn't hold together because... For that festival, the expectations were theater. So that's really about doing research on your potential Fringe Festival, ask, interviewing people, or even looking at the past lineup and calling some of those people and asking them, you know, what what was really successful and what wasn't. And I've found a lot of Fringe artists are willing, are quite willing to tell you everything. Yes, even if you don't know them, you just email them or you find their their page on Facebook. They're they're happy to share information. At other Fringe Festivals, it might be completely different. I adore the Rogue Festival in Fresno, California. It's about three hours from Los Angeles or San Francisco. But that Fringe Festival is actually run, by and large, by the music community. It started as the theater community putting it together, but the theater community in that town is so small, they invited singer-songwriters, bands, um, cabaret artists to come in and do material and so a lot of the shows are music and so in that festival people aren't thinking oh, i'm gonna go see theater they are paying attention to the genre well i only want to go see singer songwriters i only want to go see music i only want to see dance and a great dance community in fresno so when i did storytelling there Everybody there wanted to see storytelling. They were expecting to see it. They, they, nobody walked in thinking, oh, wait, I thought I was getting something else. Now, did you actually call your stuff? When you went to Washington, did you use the word storytelling in any of the literature? I, in the description, I said, yeah, Tim Araneta, storyteller, will be telling stories. But in the database of, in the website, the Capital Fringe website, there was no checkbox for storytelling. So I had to check, was I comedy, was I drama, was I a musical, was I solo performance, or was I dance? What did you check? I checked solo performance. And for me, that I thought, I am a solo performer. You're just going to see me. That, that fits. Um, but I think by and large to the community, some people went to see a solo performer thinking I was going to do a one-man play, like maybe Lily Tomlin's Search for the Intelligent, Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, or or performers like um, Sarah Jones or Anna DeVere Smith, where they put together a play, but it's just done by one person. But that's not what I was doing. I was just telling stories. I was solo. 
I didn't realize that, uh, you know, that particular festival had its own set of expectations. It sounds like this is something that both full-time storytellers and semi-professional storytellers can consider as a means of getting their work out or really testing out shows. Yes, it's for anyone. It's for any level of performer. And in fact, the Canadian Fringe Festivals, and, and then in North America, Canada has really been the impetus for these festivals to spring up. One of the key principles that they run by is that we're not going to tell you who's good, who to see or who not to see. It's up to the audience to decide what they want to see and for the audience to choose who's a great performer and who's absolutely doesn't belong on stage. That means they sincerely want performers of all levels and abilities to come and try out, make it a laboratory for trying out new work or reaching new audiences. You could do you know, something you've never been able to do before, try it out in front of audiences who are open-minded and willing to see something new, or you could bring your best work, your most polished performance, and say, okay, I want to try it with a new audience. I'm used to doing storytelling crowds. Let's see how it plays outside of the storytelling community. Let's leave the French community for a moment. And um, I, I know you think a lot about the storytelling community, and you do a lot of deep thinking about where do you think, as a national community, what, what are the issues that that storytellers around the United States should be thinking about? What are the things that that you want them to to be conscious about? I'm, I'm, what I'm thinking about right now, actually, is we we both went to the ProSig, and there's a lot of discussion about how the 20 and 40 year old market is not is not coming into the storytelling festival circuit. By and large, I think the storytelling community connected to the American storytelling revival that started in the 1970s has been a baby boomer phenomenon, and it's aged as the baby boomers have aged. And Generation X, the 20 to 40-year-olds, have been ignored or shut out, but that doesn't mean storytelling has disappeared. It's that it's taken other forms. And so right now I see two parallel storytelling communities. There's a baby boomer generation one that's holding conferences and festivals and wondering, well, where's the next generation? And then there's the generation X uh, community that has on their own just said, oh, we can do storytelling. We'll just start it up. We'll call it storytelling. And um, events like The Moth and all around the country, different cities have put together personal storytelling events like Speakeasy and Porchlight, and they bring together people to share their personal stories, and they're starting to reach out and connect with each other and, and network. That's a whole parallel storytelling community. And I would think there's absolutely no reason why these two communities can't talk to each other and learn from each other. Um, do you have any suggestions within the structure of the National Storytelling Network of how we should be changing... Um, the way we do things uh, and the way we organize things, the way we think about how the Sto National Storytelling Network should be representing storytelling in the world. In terms of an organization, I don't... Oh, I'm still always doing thinking about that. In, in terms of storytelling events and specifically storytelling festivals, I know a lot of storytelling festivals are modeled on the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And that 
model works great for Jonesboro, and Jonesboro is a wonderful event. But when you bring it back to San Francisco or Seattle or St. Louis or wherever you are, I'm not sure that the community is served by copying that model the same way. If, you, if you've been doing it that way, where you have all these outdoor tents um, and it evokes old revivals and you get these storytellers up on stage and um, it's generally for family audiences and if that works for you and it's a vibrant success and you're able to pull it off every year, great. But I think that for some festivals who are struggling to get audiences, who are losing money, that it's time to just rethink a model and not to look to other storytelling festivals necessarily, but look to see, but how do musicians put together festivals? How do theaters put together festivals? Where do people expect to go see live performance? Do they expect to go see it in a tent out in a field somewhere 15 miles out of town? Where do they expect to see it in a theater downtown or a new art center or a coffee house or, you know, there are as many different ways to do it as there are venues and cities in this country. How do you interact with your children in terms of the application of storytelling? With my own children, they've grown up hearing stories, but they're actually not so impressed that I tell stories. They're more excited to hear, you know, other storytellers um, because we, we have their CDs, we go to events at the library or at festivals, and they get to see all these other storytellers, which is exciting for them because if it's just dad telling stories, well, you know, they've got other things to do, um, videos to watch or books to read or Legos to play with. Um, but I do know they have a great handle on being able to tell stories, even though they don't do that very often. They're not um, aspiring storytellers yet you know my sons and i we listen to stories every single night and they actually prefer not to listen to their dad tell stories not to listen to me they prefer to listen to the cds of all the various storytellers we've met at festivals or gone to see at libraries or at their school and that's fine i totally understand that you know they see me every day why they're, they're more excited to hear a story from someone else and they've heard all my stories, so they're like, yeah, do we have to hear that again? Like, can we? <laughs> I think being able to tell them stories, though, they've certainly learned how to listen. I think they've learned a lot about story structure. They're more interested now to... If I tell kids, oh, well, let's go see a storyteller, I know some kids don't have the faintest idea what that is or why they'd be interested. My kids, I'm happy to know that they are like, oh, okay, what kind of stories are we going to hear? Um Let's go. Let's go see them. I wish I was better at at um, finding the right story at the right moment to teach a lesson. You know, because there are so many teachable moments as a parent, and uh, I haven't been able to do that. Like, I don't have that repertoire of stories to say. Well, that's for, you know, what have we learned here? Well, let me tell you a story that um, that hasn't quite happened in my family yet. So I'm so wondering. Um, I think that's something I'd, I'd like to do. As, as I learn more stories, I'm keeping an eye out for stories that uh, my kids might be able to learn a lesson from, a life lesson. So let's open it up to our audience who have been very patient with us. So do you have a question for... Hi, Eric. I'm Dixie Delatour. I do a monthly adult storytelling series in San Francisco. And I know your work, but I don't know your work, Tim. So 
I wanted to ask you about chart toppers and if it grew out of traditional children's tales, folk tales, and did you leave the controversy in for grown-ups? Did you adapt it for a not an adult audience for the fringe? So here's why I chose to do a fairy tale show called Chart Toppers at the Fringe. When I started storytelling, I actually started at a comedy writing workshop at the Marsh in San Francisco, which is a uh, it's called the, a breeding ground for new performance. They develop solo performance, and I signed up for a comedy writing workshop. And what came out of that, I developed a monologue by Prince Charming telling his side of the story of Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, uh, Rapunzel. So getting the lowdown on these women, but from his point of view. And I liked working with fairy tales in that way, fracturing what everyone expected to hear and giving it a new perspective. But I found as I was developing that piece that audiences had either never heard or forgotten some of the imagery from Grimm's fairy tales. For example... In the Grimm's version of Cinderella, at the end of the story, her stepsisters um, get their comeuppance by having birds peck out their eyes. And I think that's true to the emotional truth of the story, is that they never saw Cinderella's beauty, and they never treated her well, so there's justice in the world of that fairy tale. But those kind of images, which are in the original stories, are often left out for kids, and all the grown-ups I was doing this comedic monologue for I left some of those images in and they really responded to that they really uh, let me know that those images had a lot of power so after I developed those Prince Charming monologues I thought what am I going to work on next what I challenged myself to do was work on telling traditional fairy tales and folk tales with all the imagery left in that people had forgotten about and not trying to make it funny. Just see what would happen if I just shared these stories, some of these obscure fairy tales, but left in all the imagery that's in there. And so that's how Chart Toppers started. I just wanted to share these fairy tales. Now, a lot of them I found in collections, which I found in the children's section of my library, but they were not edited for children, necessarily. The, the Grimm's brothers did a little bit of, of cleaning up of these stories. But... By and large, I thought, well, I'm going to tell these stories to any audience, whether they're kids or adults. I really want to gauge their response. And I trusted that because these stories come from the oral tradition, they've been shaped over time. They kept being told for a reason. And that people tell them because they thought it was important for these stories to be heard and that people could hear these stories, take them in, and accept them. So when it came time to do putting together the Fringe show, I really let the stories speak for themselves and the what I adapted was simply the filler in between whether it was comments on medieval Europe or the joking part about counting down the top hits that's really the only change I made for a fringe audience now Dixie has a show or a, a whole venue she runs could you just tell us a little bit about that if, and if you have another question <clears throat> Um, I do a monthly series in San Francisco called Body Storytelling, B-A-W-D-Y. And it's people, the, the recurrent underlying theme is sex. People talking about the things that they don't normally talk about in their life. And what's the website? Uh, 
bodystorytelling.com, B-A-W-D-Y. Do you know the question for Tim? Uh, well, it's not so much a question as a comment, which I it was, uh, you were talking about the marsh, and I have a friend who just did a show at the marsh, and we were also talking about Howard Lieberman's um, comment about the business cards and, um, you know, putting free tickets on the back and, and things like that. And I've... Uh, this person is about to go into, she's working at the Marsh, and she's about to go into the Fringe Circuit, and I know another performer in the Fringe Circuit. And um, she found out the press was going to be coming to the Marsh to review her show. And as someone who does a monthly series, I, you know, I give away comps to get people in, but certainly not a ton of them. And when she found out that they were going to be coming into her theater, she gave away tickets to the entire house which I thought was kind of crazy. But in the review, the review was glowingly positive because they were like, you know, some of the stuff she did was incredibly edgy, but unbelievably it worked. The audience totally got it, and the audience were kind of shills, you know, so of course it worked. Another one who is a a performer named Joshua Walters who does a show about um, a solo performance about being bipolar and, and dealing with that. Has has performed for me before and has talked about um, how I'm able to get a, a consistent house without printing up cards, without, you know, you talked about having the cards in the lobby and stuff like that. And I don't do that. And he's like, how is it that you're able to get people in, you know, without spending money? Because social media is essentially free. And. Uh, my performers put out YouTube videos. Um, there, there's a website. There's information out there that tells how I build the show, and they can see pieces of the show, and so they're able to um, know what they're going to be walking into when they show up. Whereas a piece of card with some carefully chosen words, which are, as an artist, your vision is really hard to put on a card. Like, you've got a paragraph. Describe what you've been working on for six years in a paragraph. It's almost impossible to do. Or with an image. Yeah, exactly. You put those two things together. If I were to find a card on your performance, I wouldn't go see your performance. Hearing you talk about what it is. I absolutely want to go see your performance because you've you've given me a peek into inside, you know, where you're coming from. And I I just wanted to say, you know, social media is an amazing way to not only talk about the vision behind what you're creating, but to show them, you know, a free little chunk of what they're going to be seeing so that they're willing to put out their money and come attend. Absolutely. And I noticed with the Capital Fringe Festival, I'm in town, there's 130 other performances, how am I going to go see, choose what to see? And on these little postcards, a lot of them, not enough of them, had a link to their website. So I'd go to their website, and some of them had a blog, and they talked about how they had put together the show, how they'd come up with the ideas, how they cast the show, how rehearsal was going. So I actually could see the story of how, you know, an idea growing to inception. That was kind of exciting. And I have to confess, most of the shows I went to see, I went because I did find a page on Facebook or on YouTube. I got to see an excerpt of what this person was doing, what it was like. And that's a no-brainer. And I, I didn't get video up in time for the Fringe Festival. I had video. I didn't get it up in time. But I made sure that on my postcard, people could find my website, 
and that on the Capital Fringe Festival website, there was a link to my page about the show so people could learn more about it than the one paragraph and one photo they could see on the postcard. So, yes, absolutely. Social media is a tool you have to use, whether you're on a fringe festival circuit or doing a storytelling venue or storytelling event. And the one thing I want to say about your venue, Dixie, there are some shows that if you can describe it in half a sentence, you'll get people to come, either because you have a catchy title or people are interested in that subject. So with body storytelling, people are interested in sex. They're going to come see the show because they're interested in the topic. On the Fringe Festival circuit, there are legends of titles that have sold out based on their titles alone. Um, the one-man Star Wars trilogy. Sold out every show with that title. And I haven't seen it, but I know he's a, a terrific performer, and he's now touring with his one-man Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, there was another show up in the Toronto Fringe Festival, legendary Top Gun, the musical. Sold out <laughs> just on that concept. Doesn't matter if the show's going to be good or bad. People want to know, how are they going to make that a musical? I've got to see that. So, very short description. If you can describe the show in, in one word, one phrase, uh, or have content that people are interested in, um, that's going to bring in audiences. I should point out that many fringe festivals, on those checkboxes where you say, okay, is it a drama, is it a comedy, is it solo performance? Many festivals will have a checkbox for warning nudity. And so some people will just go to a French festival. Hey, I'm going to see all the all the nude shows, and that doesn't mean they're necessarily X-rated. They might be dance pieces or performance art, but um, you know that's another way that people say, "Hey, if you're interested in that, come see this kind of show." I usually check the box for literary because it cracks me up because my show is about sex, and we're now going to be we're headlining at the san francisco literary festival and they're expecting like forty thousand people this year and there's i mean storytelling is literary but dirty storytelling is not literary <laughs> which cracks me up but i also wanted to say here at the at the storytelling convention i've noticed in the the hand the program and everything like that that there are several shows that are called backstory that are about how people developed a piece. And that's one of the things that I find amazing about social media. You're sitting here, you're telling me how you created your show, where the idea came from. That's the backstory on the show. I want to know that. If that were out there on the web, on a blog, or the backstory of the audience who went, I went expecting this was going to be children's fables, and I was amazed at what, that's their experience too. And that's an amazing way to use um, social social media for people to share because people want storytelling to be personal it is but you have to get them into a chair first so i i love reading your blog and i love that you have collected these video pieces of storytelling performers i would never have come across you know i'm pretty much in the moth area of things but you know, I've come across new performers and started following their work because of your interest in storytelling. So thank you. When I organized the National Storytelling Network uh, Eco Retreat this past spring, um, to me it was just a dry run for what's going to happen in three years with that retreat. And so I just worked really hard to document it 
you know, so I took pictures and then I also did audio portions. I, after the retreat, I ran to people and said, well, tell me what you liked about this. And so I have all these little auto recordings on the blog now. And then someone else wrote a report. So I have the, the blog, traditional blog post, a lengthy four-part report. And, but I also have a page of pictures with people and their audio comments about the retreat. Um, well, I didn't do a video, unluckily, but, but just to have these different, you know, to hit them on different levels when they come to the blog is, is what I'm talking about. So um, you you were talking about your opinions on you. Ta- I, I thought you did a great description of uh, traditional storytelling, the baby boomers, and the next gen, the Gen X people who are coming in. Do you see any way of uniting those communities? Because as someone who came in with preconceived notions about this conference, um, I've been, you know, I, the skill of the old timers is is amazing to me. And I would love to be able to have, I mean, it's an oral tradition. We want to pass it on. Uh, do you see any way of uniting those and having those people teach the Gen Xers? I think it's just going to take a few uh, ambassadors from each generation to go visit each other's venues and events and say, you know, I know some people would fit in here, and I know some people who would fit in at your event, and just starting to make those personal connections and finding ways to bring the older generation to the moth type events, personal storytelling events, and vice versa, bringing the personal storytellers from Generation X to the traditional storytelling festivals. This is Jeff Gear speaking to you from the heart of the Pacific Ocean. Oh, aren't we all happy that we're here listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf? Uh Uh-huh. So do you have any uh, offers for the audience? Do you have any ways that the audience can keep in touch with you and things they can follow? I would be happy to give people advice and talk to them, consult with them on whether they are ready to do a fringe show or if they feel they are ready on advice on how to get started and they can reach me through my website at timarinetta.com I have a contact form there just um, contact me that way let me know you're interested in doing a fringe festival and send me your questions I'm happy to, to send out some answers from my perspective or if I don't know about a particular city or or festival, I'm happy to point you in directions of, oh, I know this person did that festival, or this storyteller, or juggler, or um, theater troupe, or comedian did that festival, and they could probably give you some advice, too. And your blog again, Breaking Eggs? Breaking the Eggs, Performance Storytelling for the 21st Century, you can find at storytelling.blogspot.com. I think for my offer, I'd just like to remind the audience that this is just one of many interviews on the theartofstorytellingshow.com. So if you have a disc you're listening to or you're listening to uh, this on a, on a playaway or perhaps you have somebody's iPod, that there is, in fact, a website with additional new material on it being produced as you're listening to this one. And you're welcome to go there and, and look at the additional comments the, author, the various artists have written on the blog. There's various other comments and commentary, etc. So do you have any final words of wisdom for the international storytelling community? I would just say be willing to think outside of the box. If you've always thought of storytelling one way because 
your bread and butter is performing school assemblies or library shows, think about what would you really like to do but you don't have a venue for yet. No one would want to see this. You know, there might be someone who wants to see it. And I would say a fringe festival is a great place to try it out and see what happens. I think one of the things that comes out of this conversation for me is that storytelling is an art form that is in flux and that it's always been in flux. And there's a tendency, I think, among any art form to think that we know what it is. And this conversation reminds me that there is no solid way to do any art form. Even the most oldest of Chinese brush strokes can be rethought. And even even the great masters of the Middle Ages were coming up with new things all the time. Coming back to your show, Tim. <laughs> so I I think it's just really important to understand that oral traditions shift over time. And that's the advantage. Tim, thanks so much for coming to the show. And Dixie, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Eric. I had a great time. Thanks, Eric. This guest has written a post for the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com. This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website, plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved. many times and I loved him. I'm a big fan of Tim's and his blog. Have you read his blog? Yes. Okay. And I've never actually spent any real time with him. So we're both in the awkward position where we've actually, he's listened to my show for a lot of time and I've read his stuff for a long time. We actually don't really have any relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Um. My guest Tim Arnetta. Did I say that right? Arnetta. My guest. <laughs> because maybe my guest, Tim Arnetta, has something that will add to your ability. What? Arnetta. I'm an equal opportunity name destroyer. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Arnetta. 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 Arnetta.
Tim Araneta, who I've been saying it wrong for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tim, 